And so this Palm Sunday message represents a critical point in the history of Israel and the history of the Jewish people, because God has marked this day as effectively the day of redemption of Israel. Make no mistake about it, and I'm going to make a point of making it clear in this message. God preordained that this would be the date of their redemption, that Jesus would walk into Jerusalem on that day and that the people of Israel would have the responsibility to accept them as their Messiah and their Lord and Savior. And so the question becomes, would they step up? Would they do as God had preordained and prepared for them? Would they do it or would they fail? Uh, and unfortunately, it's a sad story. And so I'm going to take a hiatus from my continuing sermon series on lessons from the early church uh, to focus on these next two weeks, Palm Sunday uh, and Easter, and the resurrection of Easter. And when I speak next week on the resurrection of Easter, I plan on speaking on the importance of the third day, the third day, because as you will see, God had indicated for a thousand years before that something spectacular would happen in Israel on the third day. He just didn't say it once. He said it over and over and over again. And that's why we understand that everything that we are is based on the third day and Jesus rising from the grave. And so now we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the scripture that I'm using is Matthew 21, verses 1 to 20. It's on the board. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on it. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna! To the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And so Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting at the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany where he spent the night. 
But early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And so effectively, that becomes uh, the symbol of Israel, the withered fig tree. And so Jesus now heads into Jerusalem. Following the raising of Lazarus from the dead, you can imagine what it was like. Everybody in, in all of Jerusalem was talking about this tremendous miracle. And Jesus now walks in to Jerusalem based on this. And the religious elite had determined that Jesus had to die. He had to go uh, because they were afraid of their own uh, position. And so Jerusalem is filled with probably, according to historians, over one million people celebrating the coming Passover, over one million people who'd come, really, from all over the world, really, to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And so now Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, uh, walks into Jerusalem in front of a massive public demonstration as he is offering himself as the Messiah and the King of Israel. Uh, and normally, you see, as we know from studying Jesus, he would be very quiet uh, about the fact that he was the Messiah. He would often heal people and tell them, don't say anything that I healed you. Tell no man. But here, Jesus enters in front of this massive uh, demonstration. And so why would he do this? Why would Jesus be part of this? Well, I would submit to you that Jesus was giving the Jewish people one last chance, one last chance so that they would not have an excuse. They could not say later, if we only knew, if you would only come in a public way. And so Jesus is offering himself, you see, as the Messiah uh, in this very public way. And as he is doing this, he is completing the very prophecies of God written hundreds of years before. And this is the key to understand who God is and who Jesus is. Everything about the life of Christ was preordained prophetically. And you will see that this week in this message and, and in the Easter Sunday message as well. And so as they're approaching Jerusalem, uh, Jesus knows the prophecies. He knows that there's a, a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. And so Jesus is very clear about knowing that prophecy, even though it was written hundreds of years before. And so he sends out his disciples to go find that donkey and bring that donkey into him so that he can ride that donkey into, into Jerusalem in accordance with, with the scriptures. And so the disciples did that. And Jesus did that. And so as he's doing this, effectively completing the scripture prophecies, the crowd now begins to put their cloaks and pulls palm branches out and throws the palm branches on the, on the ground. And look at what they say here. They say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest oh, answer. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And the point was, they weren't accepting Christ as the Messiah. They were anointing him as their putative leader. They wanted a political leader. That was the point of this demonstration. They wanted to throw off the boot 
of, of Rome. And so they had determined that Jesus was the man. And so that is why this public demonstration takes place. Uh, and it's such a spiritual failure in every possible way that God will deliver judgments against Israel for their failure. They will deliver judgments against institutional Israel and against institutional Judaism. Uh, and so may we be constantly reminded of the significance of this moment. God had preordained this was the day of redemption for the Jewish people. It was the day of redemption. This was their opportunity. You know, opportunities to become saved and accept Jesus Christ do not linger forever. There are moments, there are windows, and we have an a responsibility to step forward when that happens. And so here you see, here's the crowd anointing Jesus as their putative political leader, and within one week, they would turn on him. They would turn on him and yell, crucify him, crucify him, when in fact, he would not be the political leader that they wanted. And so you see it. What happens when you step away from your day of visitation, from the time of visitation? That's what this message is about. That's the message of Palm Sunday. Uh, and so they cut the palm branches and waved them in the air and laid them before Jesus. And yes, the palm branches represented goodness uh, and victory, but they were looking for political victory even as God had predetermined this was the spiritual victory that Jesus had uh, determined would be possible with his life. And so Jesus rides in on a donkey, and the donkey indicates peace and fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies because whenever a, a, a leader would ride in on a donkey, it would symbolize peace in a great way and show peaceful intentions. And that's what Jesus did. He didn't have any intentions of overthrowing Rome. That wasn't the essence of his life. His life was about relieving people from the bondage of sin. And yet the religious elite refused to accept him, refused to understand that here was the veritable prince of peace. Uh, and so it, it's such a profound moment uh, and such a failure on the part of the Jewish people in such a way. And so God intended eternal salvation eternal forgiveness for sin, uh, and bringing salvation to a lost people. Uh, the verse that comes to mind as I consider this is Psalm 118, verse 26, and says there, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so it's hard to imagine that in a few short days, they same crowd would yell, crucify him, crucify him, and murder him. It's incredible. Uh, because he was not a military leader, because he would not be a political leader, because he would not seek to overthrow the boot of Rome. And there is a spiritual analogy for us today. You see, so many people walk away from Jesus because they don't get from Jesus what they want. You see, so many people are looking for a hotel concierge. What can I get from Jesus, you know? How much can I put in the left hand so that I'm going to get it in the right hand? It's all over television. It's in every day of your life. What are you going to give me, Jesus, if I follow you? That's the nature of what we see today in so many places. In fact, you understand, this is exactly what the Jewish people were doing on that day. Jesus, what are you going to do for us? Are you going to rise up and throw off Rome? Oh, you're not? 
Well, then let's crucify him. The crowd turns on a dime. That's exactly what happens. And so God, God has given us the one gift without price, eternal salvation. If you never get another gift from God other than salvation, guess what? Paid in full. Amen. Paid in full. And that's the essence of this message today, understanding what took place on Palm Sunday and how a people failed, how a religion failed, how the religious elite failed. Yes, there would still be opportunities for individual Jewish people, but institutionally, as a country, institutionally, as a religion, there would be a judgment, a terrible judgment. And so amazingly, Scripture tells us that Jesus weeps in the midst of this triumphal entry. Do you understand? If you won't really see this and read the Scripture, you know the heart of God, and you see what's going on. Why would Jesus weep in the middle of this triumph where hundreds of thousands of people are hailing him and throwing down palm branches? After all he's been through, why would his heart weep? He wept because his heart broke because he saw how profound their need was for a savior. He had come to the world to save them from sin. And so he saw that, and you see it in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you... Even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. You understand that? The day of redemption, the day of opportunity. But now, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Moreover, Jesus then prophesied about a coming day that would only be 40 years down the line. 40 years down the line. And he did that in Luke 19. Again, 41 to 44, where Jesus said, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And that's exactly what would happen in the year A.D. 70 when the Romans would come and lay siege to Jerusalem, lay siege to Jerusalem, and would put, put up embankments around it to keep anyone from going out or going in, do that for about 170 days, and eventually take the city down, take the temple down, take the walls down, one brick after another, melt them for the gold that was in there, and there would be, according to reliable historical reports, over one million bodies of men, women, and children, just as Jesus had prophesied, just as he had indicated. This was the day of visitation. This was your opportunity, and yet you walked away. And so they should have known, you see, that this was the day of their visitation. And they failed for a number of reasons. First of all, they had not been properly taught the rabbis had not properly taught the prophecies. The people hadn't studied the Torah, hadn't studied Scripture, because had they done that, it was crystal clear that this was the day. And I'm referencing specifically Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 to 26. The single greatest biblical prophecy of all time. 
Because on that day, the angel Gabriel gave to Daniel the precise chronology of when the Messiah would walk into Jerusalem. And I have this, and you can study it on the board. Know and understand this. This is from Gabriel. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens, and every seven is a period of seven years. And so that's 49 years. And 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler will, who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. You see, it was very simple for them to make this calculation. The Jewish year was 360 days. And so if you took this formula, you understood that from the time the wall had been completed, and it was very easy to understand what that date was. We studied that in Nehemiah. 483 years later, after the clock of prophecy had begun to tick on the fate of Israel, at that very moment, Jesus would walk into Jerusalem. 32 AD, April, he walks in. It's as if the script had been written. He walks in, and they walk out. And so you see, two great events were coming together at that time. Two great events. Yes, Jesus would be cut off. Jesus would die, as the prophecy would indicate. Uh, he would die. But at the same time, the city would be destroyed. It would be destroyed. That's what the angel Gabriel said. It was very clear. These people would be destroyed mercilessly, surrounded by their enemies. And so what an incredible prophecy this was. As you see what happens when we walk away from God. There's a judgment when we walk away from God. You just don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. God has given you every opportunity to have eternal life. And yet, so many people repudiated. Now, Jesus was a man's man. As he walked into Jerusalem on that last day, no one was daring to stop him. He walked into the temple. And again, as part of his spiritual legacy, he cleans out the temple. He cleans out the money changers. This is God's house. This is a house of prayer. This is where people have to come to be prayed for and to be elevated, to be given the word of God, to be given scripture. This is what it's all about. It's not about changing money. It's not about having a business and Jesus cleans it out, cleans it out again as part of the prophecies of God doing this. And so you see Jesus, incredibly, instead of creating a military spectacle, a military spectacle, a political spectacle, goes directly to the temple to demonstrate what he truly brings to this world. Salvation, holiness, righteousness. And yet, the Jewish people would reject him. This is the very essence of salvation. It's a clear message today as to the role of the temple, what God wants from us. Now, there's several lessons to be learned here for us today. First, obviously, the temple is a house of prayer. It's not about a place of business. When we come to church, it's about a house of prayer. We're coming to deliver the word of God. If we don't do that, we have failed. 
just as the Jewish people failed. Second, it is a place where people will be helped. That's what we want this church to be, a place where people will come who need help, who will be helped. Finally, it's also a place where people will be given the understanding of the word of God. The word of God, the understanding of the word of God, what in fact had not been done in Israel. They had not studied the prophecies of Daniel. They had not studied the prophecy of Zechariah. You understand that? And because of that, they were doomed to fail. And there was a responsibility on that on the rabbis, on the religious elite. And so on the way back, you see, on the way back, from Bethany on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, Jesus saw a fig tree. And this is key because this becomes emblematic of this entire visitation. And this is a symbolic commentary uh, on this final trip. You know, fig trees often would grow to a height of 25 feet and widths of 25 feet. Figs were a staple of the Hebrew diet. Uh, and Jesus was hungry. He, he didn't have breakfast, and he was hungry for figs. And so he went over to that fig tree that was full of branches, full of life, full of greenery to pick a fig. And yet the fig tree was a hypocrite. There wasn't a single piece of fruit on that tree. It was devoid of any fruit. And so the tree should have had figs on it. It should have had multiple figs on it. And so it was a shocking turn of events. And so seemingly out of character, Jesus curses the tree for not having fruit and the, truth immediately, and the tree immediately withers, beginning in the roots. And so there's a couple of lessons, again, to be learned here. First, Jesus expects us to be fruitful. That's the essence of this. As he walked into Jerusalem and they're laying down palm trees, I want you to understand something. Those palm trees are as dead as that fig tree. Those palm leaves are as dead. They were waving empty branches that had no fruit. You understand? The branches had no fruit. It was irrelevant that they were putting them down. There was no fruit. And so Jesus expects us to have fruit. And so as he walks into our lives today, that's the first lesson for us uh, as God's own special planning, uh, as his covenant people from Psalm 1, verse 3. says, a lack of fruitfulness is a sign of God's curse for their rebellion. You see, the time had come uh, for God's people to yield fruit that would bless the world. That was the point. Israel was meant to be the messengers, the messengers of the good news, the messengers of the gospel. And they would only do it if they had fruit. And instead, they were looking for a political leader. They weren't looking for salvation. They weren't looking for eternal life. And so even though there's this tremendous outward demonstration of affection for Jesus, because Jesus, what are you going to give us? What are you going to do for us, Lord? You're going to throw off the boot of Rome? Instead, Jesus wanted to see their fruit. And there was no fruit. It was empty. And so if you look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, you see the enumeration of fruit, of what God looks for. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those 
who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. And also in James chapter 3, it says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And so here's the lesson. When Jesus comes to see you today, what kind of tree do you have? Do you have a tree full of the fruit of the gospel? Do you have love and graciousness and kindness and self-control? Are you there like one of the crowds in Jerusalem on that day, waving a branch? Oh, yes, Jesus, look how good I am. Look at me. Look at what we're doing. All full of greenery and emptiness of fruit. No fruit. No fundamental fruit. Because the proof of that was that within seven days, these same hypocrites would say, crucify him. Crucify him. What kind of fruit of the gospel is that? You understand? And so that's effectively what Jesus saw in Jerusalem that week. Three years of his life in ministry. Three years of preaching the gospel. Three years of preaching salvation and redemption. And all they wanted was a political leader. Jesus, be my concierge. And so what you see here is that God had pursued the children of God with such compassionate seriousness. Uh, and yes, they hailed Jesus, but they were hailing him for the wrong reason. Everything is lining up. You see God lining it up. Everything is lining up. The eschatological prophecies all line up. The timing has arrived. God wrote it in the skies. He will come in to Jerusalem in April 32 AD. Israel's fruit will now be harvested. Blessings will pour forth on this country. Blessings will for, flow, flow forth on Judaism. Uh, the Passover celebration, the tumult, the crowds, the singing, however, all of it is a show. It's a hypocritical show. None of it will matter. And Jesus enters a house of prayer and finds it a den of robbers. And I submit to you that that's what this was about. It was a den of robbers. It was a den of religious hypocrites who had not come to understand what God's call was on their life. Leaves, but no fruit. Branches, but no fruit. This reminds us of our responsibility to produce fruit. It reminds us of the danger of false pretenses. That's what Palm Sunday is about, you see. It's about the fact that within seven days, the greatest miracle in the history of the world will take place. And the Jewish people would not be there. The religious elite will have walked out. And judgment will come. Oh, Lord, Lord, Deliver us from this. Deliver us from this painful truth. This is a sobering day, and it's very sobering even as we are about to do communion. I ask you to bow your heads as I close this prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the message that you have given us, Father, for the danger and warning to our lives about the need to have fruit, Father. 
as we've seen the Jewish people walk out in favor in terrible failure, even as they would wave branches, but the branches were empty. There was no fruit. And so, God, I ask you that you convict us and elevate us so that we understand what our responsibility is to a lost world. Let us be full of fruit. Let every branch that we have of our lives be full of the fruit of the Spirit as we bring others to you. Amen. So now we're going to celebrate communion. And Jesus would do it that week, the day before he would be taken into custody and be put on a cross to die for our sins. As he would celebrate, you see, the last Passover. It was the last Passover because from that time forward, God had decreed that the Passover would be replaced, would be replaced forever by communion. And so that's what's going on here as Jesus will give us his body and his blood. You see, and what I would say to you is if you're here with us today, we don't care whether or not you're affiliated with our church. All I would say to you is if in fact you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, we want you to take communion with us because God has ordained it. This is a responsibility we have as Christians. And so there can be no greater bond that we have as a people than this link between our Lord and Savior and us that we celebrate today. No other service so reflects this bond and communion. This ordinance, you see, is for believers. You believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then you must take communion. And so each person, you see, has to determine for themselves their responsibility. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. And so at the same time, participation, even as you examine yourself, participation is not optional. It is mandatory. It must be done. Jesus said he commanded us to do it. So when you examine yourself, you're not examining yourself to see if you're worthy or to see if you're holy. I'll answer that question. You're not. Because I've already answered that for me. I'm not. But I bow before God. I bow before him, that crucified Lord. And because I believe in him, because I've accepted him, and because God sees me through the filtering lens of his son, yes, I'm worthy. Yes, I can come and take communion. And so when we take communion, we look at the words of Paul used to describe this experience in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on that night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this 
whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what this is. This is your public testimony to the world that you are united with Christ, that you are bonded to him forever. And so it becomes an important aspect of who we are and our expression of being a Christian with Jesus. Jesus was able to see these words because he was about to go to the cross. He was about to die once and for all, for all of the sins of mankind. He would be the Passover lamb, you see, that was put into place 1,400 years before as the Jewish people were brought out of bondage. And so now it would become the last Passover, the final Passover, as we go from the Old to the New, from the Old Testament to the New, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, covered by Jesus Christ. And so when we come to communion, when we take communion, we come to understand what the Lord has truly done for us. We examine ourselves, we look at ourselves, and we look at the sin and those issues in our life where we fall short of the life of Christ. And so we ask him to wash us every way, to purge us, to help us to grow, help us to be better. Lord, give me the fruit of the spirit that you want me to have. Lord, make me more like you. And we say this because we know that Jesus said that no man cometh to the Father except through him. This is the way of the truth and life. There is no other way. That's why we are Christians. So let's bow and say a prayer of thanks before we take of the elements. Lord, we're so mindful of your sacrifice for what you did for us on the cross. And so, Lord, as we sit here in communion, thanking you for that, Lord, we ask you to wash us and purge us and help us, Lord, to become better Christians, to become more like you in every aspect of our life so that we can leave here, we can tell a lost world about how great you are, Lord, in every possible way. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us the privilege today to be able to take this communion. And so if I ask you to take the cup, and if you open it up, you first will have the wafer. Take the wafer. I'd ask you to hold it up. We'll all take it together. And Jesus said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. then take up the cup of juice and raise it. And Jesus said the following, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and drink. Lord, I thank you for what you have done for us. I thank you that you went to the cross, Lord, as the perfect Passover lamb, 
that you completed all of the prophecies, that every word spoken of you in scriptures came to be completed on that day. And so, Lord, we ask you to wash us and help us and lead us to become greater in your eyesight, to have fruit so that the world can say, yes, I want to be like them. I want to be like her. Lord, that's the message of today. That's the message of communion as we put all of this in our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Precious name. Amen.